Thanks for joining us. I'm Derek McGinty, sitting in for Diane Reem. She is back to work on Monday. Well, Kurdish and Iraqi forces opened a new front in the fight to retake Mosul from the Islamic State. On lockdown, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange may really be feeling like a prisoner this week as Ecuador apparently has cut off his Internet privileges, yet email dumps keep happening. And Breaking Bad, the president of the Philippines, shocks the world and apparently a lot of his own people, saying the long-term close alliance with the United States is history. But did he really mean that? Here to talk about this week's top international stories, Abdurrahim Fukara, Regional Director for the Americas at Al Jazeera Arabic, Indira Lakshman, Foreign Policy Columnist for the Boston Globe and a contributor to Politico magazine, and Shane Harris, Senior Correspondent at the Daily Beast, Future of War Fellow at New America, and author of the book At War, The Rise of the Military Internet complex. Welcome to all three of you. So good to have you here with us. And so good to have your phone calls and your comments and questions at 800-433-8850. So let's just dive right into the Iraqi situation because outside Mosul, apparently yesterday there has there was the most intense fighting there's been in quite some time. Shane? Yeah, well, we're seeing uh, forces now come in from the north and the east and sort of a, a pincer move around Mosul, taking villages and areas outside the city. Important to note that Iraqi forces uh, are not in the city center yet. So this is uh, there's another series of stages that have to go here. And the fighting inside Mosul itself is expected to be very bloody. Uh, ISIS fighters have also launched some suicide attacks already. There's probably booby traps that are going to be greeting forces on their way in. Um, but this is the beginning of the long-awaited campaign to retake this second-largest city uh, in Iraq. Uh, and once it is taken, and I think most people presume it will be, um, that will effectively be the end of ISIS's Iraqi capital anyway and a real blow to the caliphate. But the, the big questions here are what happens after Mosul is taken uh, and what is expected to be ultimately a, a tough but successful campaign. Okay, we're going to talk about that. But in the meantime, how's the battle going right now, Mr. Fakara? Well, uh, I mean, we hearing that the ISIS are heading back, not only in uh, Mosul, um, but elsewhere. Uh, it's very significant that the battle now has uh, also shifted to Kirkuk. Uh, Kirkuk, uh, large oil industry uh, based in uh, Kirkuk, and it has huge symbolism for the Kurds uh, of uh, Iraq. So... If the reports coming uh, from the news agency, from the ISIS, the Islamic uh, uh, State's news agency, are to be believed, they have uh, hit and are now in control of some parts of uh, uh, Kirkuk. That's not necessarily what we're hearing from the other side, from the coalition. But the fact that no matter what, the fact that the battle has shifted to Kirkuk is obviously a very significant development. Indira Lakshmana. Well, I mean, let's take this all in the context, which is that ISIS forces marched into Mosul in June 2014. It's been two years. That was really the moment when the West and I'd say the United States public in particular woke up to the existence of ISIS in the first place and certainly to their lethality and, you know, the power that they suddenly had. 
Clearly, they still control Raqqa, their sort of birthplace and cradle in Syria. But if the forces were able to take them out of Mosul, they've already been expelled from other areas like Tikrit and, you know, other important strongholds they had, um, this would be huge. But let's not forget, this is not a campaign without costs. You know, just yesterday alone, um, we're told by Iraqi coalition forces that there were 15 suicide bombs attacking their forces. There was a U.S. Uh, soldier who was killed yesterday by an um, improvised explosive device. There are many IEDs. I mean, you're not even counting the number of IEDs every single day that are being set up by, by ISIS. But to me, the most interesting thing about all of this is you know, it's it's something that came up even in the presidential debate this week, where you had Donald Trump criticizing the strategy and saying, why are they telegraphing what they're going to do about ISIS? That's just bad and giving them a chance to run away. And in fact, every military scholar and planner and Pentagon official who I've talked to has said, that's crazy. In fact, the whole point is you want to. A, you can't hide it because you're talking about thousands of soldiers who are coming in. So there was no way to have a surprise There's attack. There's no way to have a surprise attack. I mean, we're talking about thousands of forces coming in. And secondly, part of the point of that is to give civilians a chance to escape if they want to. I mean, we're talking about like a million people who live in Mosul under ISIS control, giving them a chance to get out. And also, if Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, or any of his people try to escape, believe me, they are supposedly being monitored by U.S. special forces who want nothing more than for them to go out in a bunch of trucks out into the open desert so that they can be killed, not in the middle of a civilian area. But what does it mean that supposedly under siege and, and outnumbered that ISIS could still mount some kind of attack on Kirkuk, which is, what, 150 miles away? Well, they're being blamed, those attacks, I think, on sleeper cells this morning, too. So it may not be that what you're seeing is so much an extension of the force in Mosul as much as elements of ISIS um, elsewhere. But, I mean, Deira's right. This could, this could be a, a really big blow for ISIS in the city. There's about 5,000 members believed to be there. There are some signs that people are leaving. One question has been, for a lot of observers, whether or not ISIS will really try and mount a defense of Mosul, which is probably futile, or cut its losses and move these forces back into Syria, where it has has more perhaps of a relative safe haven someplace like Raqqa. If they do that, though, I mean, losing Mosul and not having, you know, Iraq in the caliphate anymore is a big deal. I mean, the name of the group includes Iraq as part of this caliphate. So that would be, I just think, a, um, a huge morale blow and possibly could um, help blunt some of their recruitment drives. I mean, uh, two things. If they are defeated um, eventually, and obviously all the signs are that, you know, given the size of the coalition, that eventually they will be de uh, defeated. What the size of the defeat is going to be, we can discuss that. But uh, I, I think all the signs are that eventually they will be defeated. question that arises is if and when they are defeated, who will emerge? What will emerge in their place? Now, we have seen them as an organization that has emerged to eventually replace al-Qaeda. In terms of the power and the sophistication uh, and the appeal with which ISIS works, that clearly surpasses uh, uh, the, the power of uh, al-Qaeda by leaps and bounds. That's number one. Number two, even after they are defeated, what will the def what will the victory look like for the Iraqis in particular? The Iraqis have had an accumulation of huge challenges, 
throughout their modern history, but particularly since 2003. And if ISIS uh, is defeated in, in Mosul, one of the noises that we are already hearing, we're hearing it from a very important component of the coalition to fight ISIS, and that is Turkey, with the mobilizing units, uh, which are Shia units, moving into uh, Mosul. Uh, the Turks are not happy about that. And then the Turks are not happy about the role that the Kurds are playing within the, the, the coalition. Uh, the, the Shia Sunni uh, component of this and the issue that Indira has uh, 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 referenced, you know, the huge violations of human rights, which mm. human rights organizations are already talking all about of by the Iraqis. All of that's really important, Mr. Fakar. But I want to go back to the first thing you said, which is how powerful... ISIS has become and how they had surpassed al-Qaeda. And just yesterday we had a bit of a conversation about this where ISIS was described as a movement. And you don't defeat a movement by shooting and killing people. Where does that movement go? If it loses ISIS, where does it go? Well, I mean, given the size of uh, their uh, drive to recruit in various parts of uh, the world, not just in the Middle East. We've seen that. We've seen that power. We've seen it in Europe. We've seen examples of it here in the, 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 the United States. But let's leave Europe and the United States aside. Just focus on the Middle East. Because the one thing that basically keeps feeding uh, problems like the problem of ISIS is not being solved in the Middle East. Not in Iraq, not in Syria, not in Egypt, not in Libya. And that is the security situations in those countries that basically, uh, and we've heard this from many Western leaders, that, that that anger keeps feeding the recruitment drive of ISIS. And as I said, if ISIS disappears tomorrow, there is no guarantee that something much more powerful and much more sinister will not replace it. Indira? Look, you know, of course, any counterterrorism strategy is on one level whack-a-mole. You know, you're hitting down forces or cells and they're popping up other places. And I have to say that intelligence not only, you know, in this country has done a pretty good job of fending off attacks. You know, just every year we hear about the FBI or the CIA, a number of plots that are exposed that were thwarted beforehand. You know, it's true. ISIS and affiliated groups are all over the world. The U.S. also has special forces advising all over the world, advising in Somalia against al-Shabaab, advising in Syria, advising in Afghanistan, you know, not to mention the main U.S. troops who are still in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a concern because we look at, you know, a campaign that the U.S. started 15 years ago, um, you know, 15 <laughs> years ago this month, and now the Taliban has regrouped and is controlled Controlling 30% of the territory in Afghanistan that was once held by Afghan government backed by the U.S. So it is, uh, I don't want to say it's circular, but there's no question that the evidence shows that core al-Qaeda has been reduced, and there's no reason to think that core ISIS couldn't also be reduced. Indira Lakshmanan is foreign policy columnist for the Boston Globe and a contributor to Political Magazine. Abdurrahim Fukara is bureau chief at Al Jazeera Arabic, and Shane Harris is senior correspondent at The Daily Beast. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show.
DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back to the Diane Reem Show. I'm Derek McGinty, your guest host for this afternoon and this second hour of our World News Roundup. We're discussing the uh, top international stories of the week, and at the top of the list is the fight in Iraq against ISIS. And a lot of folks are saying that this is a huge test of President Obama's counterterrorism strategy, the so-called Obama Doctrine, and will it be successful, Shane? Yeah, it is a big test because the whole premise of the strategy has been that we can defeat, degrade, and destroy ISIL or ISIS, uh, however you like to call it, without a major commitment of U.S. ground forces <clears throat> like we had in Iraq when we uh, took on al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the predecessor to ISIS. And the idea here is that at, at, at base that you can train up an Iraqi security force that can do the job with U.S. assistance and coalition air support. Um, that has been slow going. It seems to be paying dividends insofar as ISIS has lost many of its key strongholds in Iraq, as we've been talking about, and the ranks have been reduced. Uh, we are killing more people than they are able to bring into Iraq and Syria right now. That's a good thing. But Mosul really is about the boots on the ground component of this and retaking a major stronghold. So this is very much a big test as to whether or not this sort of light footprint from the United States and backing up the forces really can work. And dear, I see you nodding your, nodding your head over there. I completely agree with Shane. And, you know, <laughs> when the real test here is that there are 5,000 American troops now in Iraq, and about half of them are very likely to be involved in this operation in one way or another. We're talking about 30,000 Iraqi and Kurdish forces, and, you know, 2,500 American forces is no small potatoes. And so even though the Obama administration has been derided by its critics for this leading from behind strategy and trying to put coalition partners in the front, particularly in the case of Iraq. It's not only for American domestic politics, where Americans don't want another Middle East war. Um, all polls show that. But also Iraqis don't want to feel like Americans are leading the show. So at one point this week, the uh, White House press secretary said something about, oh, you know, we've done this before in northern Iraq. And then he corrected himself quickly and said, I I'm sorry, I mean that the Iraqis have done this before on a smaller scale. So, you know, they want to put out the message that Iraq is leading the fight, but there's no question that there is a huge amount of U.S. backing in this. And the test is, does it work here? And could it work in other countries where ISIS and similar organizations exist? And then once the fight is over, are the Iraqis in position to actually run Mosul and keep uh, some other version of ISIS or al-Qaeda or whatever from springing up? Well, I mean, first of all, let me say that the angry part of the fight against ISIS in Mosul is not likely to see an end by the 8th of November or even by the time the new president takes over in, in January uh, here in the, 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 the United States. I think... Depending on the dynamics on on the ground, I, I I'm I'm not sure to what extent the Obama doctrine will survive uh, in the next administration. A little much, I don't know what's going to happen with that. 
But do the Iraqi, will the Iraqis uh, need help from the United States, regardless of who takes over in, in January in, in, in the United States? The Iraqis will continue to rely on uh, crucial uh, uh, U.S. help to deal with that situation. And the problem, as we heard before, the problems that the Iraqis uh, will face in a place like Mosul, it's not just military. Fine, the U.S. will lend its military support. I mean, all the indicators are there. Problem: Can you actually administer uh, a place like Mosul, given all the contradictions that will uh, they they are already bubbling to the surface? But given all the contradictions that will have bubbled uh, fully to the surface in terms of Shia, Sunni, what the Kurds want, what the Turks want, what the Iranians want, what the Saudis want, will the Iraqis be able to manage all that? I'm not so sure. All right. I want to talk about what is one of my favorite stories of the week, not because it's the most important, just because it's interesting. Down in Ecuador, where our WikiLeaks founder, uh, Julian Assange, has been hiding out in the embassy, uh, they've decided he can't have access to the Internet anymore, which is so ironic because of who he is and what WikiLeaks does. Uh, I just want to get your reactions to this. Yeah, right? so he's in the embassy in London, the Ecuadorian embassy say, yeah. in London, right? <clears throat> he's been uh, camped out there for a number of years now. Um, uh, he lost Internet access several days ago. Initially, the government of Ecuador did not confirm or deny whether they were involved in this, but put out a statement saying he will continue to have asylum there at the embassy. Now the government is acknowledging that they did cut it off uh, because they said of the of the essentially the way that WikiLeaks was um, becoming involved in the U.S. political process and having an outsized effect on that. So clearly the Ecuadorian government deciding to try and clamp down this leak of emails so, that so are coming. So the question I have is when you say no Internet access, does that mean he's not able to Get an email or look at a YouTube video, or is he, or is he completely cut off? He, he is. He doesn't have internet access via the building he is in. You okay. could probably go on his phone and get on Twitter, you know, right. f through a cell network. And he has people who work with WikiLeaks who are continuing to post these emails. There was the, I think, the 14th installment of the so-called Podesta emails. These emails hacked from uh, Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta came out this morning. So it's still coming. And what's interesting is the Ecuadorian government hasn't really said why it did this. It's insisting that the state. Department did not try to influence us to, to do this. Um, maybe they're thinking ahead to a possible uh, Clinton administration and wanting to get on her good side. Who knows? Uh, but it's a really interesting development. Well, I think it, it dovetails with an email we got from somebody who just calling themselves R who asked the question, why hasn't the U.S. government put pressure on Ecuador to turn over Julian Assange? Oh, wow. I mean, that is a total political hot potato. He has been in the embassy as a sort of self-imposed captivity for more than four years now. Has in it Ecuador. been that long? It has. It's been since June of 2012. And this is a complicated case. He's not there because of something that he did with WikiLeaks. He's there because he's accused of rape in Sweden. Right. So it's very important that people understand this. There were, there, there were these August 2010 allegations of rape against two women, um, sexual assault and rape in, um, in Sweden, and Sweden wanted to extradite him from Britain to there. Um, so he, what he did was he sought and took political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London two years later when the British government was ready to extradite him over this rape case. So it's not because of WikiLeaks that he's um, in this self-imposed exile. But I will say, you know, he was worried that if he got extradited to Sweden that not only 
only could he be prosecuted there, but he was afraid that then Sweden, he might get extradited to the U.S., even though the U.S. has never actually put charges against him. I've written about this quite a bit, and I have to say it's very interesting because although at the time the U.S. government was furious about the first WikiLeaks um, leaks that came out, it was all those State Department cables, right. remember, and he also in, got a hold in of 2010. business as well. Well, he got involved in that later, okay. but Snowden was his own thing. But, he, but WikiLeaks first released all these Bradley Manning, now Chelsea uh, Manning, yes, emails, right. the Afghanistan-related, and all these worldwide cables in 2010. And the State Department, under Hillary Clinton at the time, was furious about this. And the government certainly looked at, because what they said is, you're endangering U.S. interests all over the world, and you're endangering confidential U.S. sources whose names appeared in all of these emails. But apparently the U.S. government looked into this and finally decided they had no actual grounds to prosecute WikiLeaks or Julian Assange because they were not the ones who actually did the leaking. It was Bradley Manning who did that, and he has indeed been prosecuted and is in captivity, whereas they said, well, basically WikiLeaks was playing the role of almost like a journalistic organization, and they said this gives us a New York Times problem is what they said at the time, the Department of Justice. We can't prosecute him, or then we'd have to prosecute people who do things like the Pentagon Papers. But he definitely has a vendetta against Hillary Clinton, no question. And they've made it very clear that they're weighing in on the side of Trump and against Hillary in this election. Robert in Miami, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'd actually like to comment uh, with regards to Ecuador uh, shutting off Internet access to Julian Assange, considering that the U.N. itself has declared that the right to access the Internet is itself a human right. Um, And I'd like to take your comments off the air. All right. Thank you, Robert. Thoughts? Anyone? Uh, I mean, first of all, let me just uh, reference that amazing story which appeared two days ago with an amazing picture that uh, goes with it of an Australian fan of Julian Assange outside the embassy, in uh, the Ecuadorian embassy in London, shouting the news to Assange through a megaphone, um, <laughs> which it just gives you an idea of the commitment on the part of some of his fans, but it also gives you an idea of how drastic the cutoff Uh, by the uh, Ecuadorans uh, uh, has been when it came to the Internet. But to address the issue that the the caller has uh, raised, I mean, sure, access to to the Internet is a a fundamental uh, right recognized by the UN. The problem is that the uh, current regime in uh, Ecuador, at least in the eyes of its critics inside Ecuador and outside, is not exactly committed to all the rights recognized by uh, the, the, the United Nations. And let's face it, when you're sitting as a country in the Western Hemisphere, which is you know, considered the a domain of the United States, it's very hard when you hear that the Russians are being accused of spying uh, to undermine the U.S. election, regardless of who wins in the end, uh, Clinton or, 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 or Trump, and still continue to uh, host someone who is associated with with the Russians and what the Russians are trying to do in the United States. All right, so that that brings to mind two questions. First of all, is it safe to say that there was some pressure from the United States on Ecuador to do this, or are you saying there's just assumed pressure that Ecuador may have taken upon itself? 
to, to, to make this move. I don't have any hard facts that there was pressure from uh, the, 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 the United States. My sense is that whether there is pressure or not, the story drives itself yeah. by itself. The concern drives itself by itself. So I agree. The, there, the State Department wouldn't need to pick up the phone and call Quito and say, hey, we'd like you to do this. It's kind of obvious. I mean, there's been extensive reporting that has shown a convergence. The New York Times did a whole project on this showing a convergence between Russian interests and material that has come out of WikiLeaks in the last couple of years. And so if, given the evidence that we know that WikiLeaks released uh, the DNC emails that were hacked by Russians, according to all the U.S. intelligence agencies, WikiLeaks released the Podesta emails, which were hacked by the Russians, according to all U.S. intelligence agencies. So at this point, Ecuador may be thinking, hey, we don't want to be a part of this. Like, Mm. we just don't want to get involved because most countries recognize the policy of not interfering in foreign countries. Elections. And it's a largely symbolic gesture, given that WikiLeaks has the infrastructure to continue publishing well, these that, emails. That was the next exactly. question, is that are the emails still coming out? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's promised that they'll be coming out from now till Election Day <laughs> and beyond. <laughs> exactly. And if we weren't talking, if we weren't dealing with Donald Trump and some of his outrageous comments about sexual assault, this would be a much bigger story. Mm. Um, it is revealing a lot about the inner workings of the campaign. It's revealing things that Hillary Clinton would prefer not be out there. Um, but I, I agree with my colleagues. I mean, they would sort of the right was on the wall for Ecuador here. It's like, why don't you do us a solid and uh, at least symbolically Even if nobody try to says do us a solid. But, right. the, but the ultimate point <laughs> is Julian Assange is not the one pressing the button to right. release these That's emails. Right. WikiLeaks is an entire structure that exists independent of him outside of that embassy. Indira Laxmanan is foreign policy columnist for the Boston Globe and a contributor to Politico magazine. Abdurrahim Fukara is uh, bureau chief at Al Jazeera Arabic. And Shane Harris, senior correspondent at the Daily Beast, a Future of War fellow at New America and author of the book At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. I'm Derek McGetty, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. We'll take another phone call. Uh, Hamish, Hamish, I should say, in Sycamore, Illinois. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Um, I am kind of interested in this uh, situation in the Philippines. Uh, It appears to me as though the people in the Philippines are uh, acted very much the same way the people in the United States are when they elected this uh, new leader. Uh, People seem to be tired of business as usual and uh, the... uh, uh, they're they're searching for somebody to make a change, and uh, I think uh, the United States should take a serious look at this at, at what's happening. I think they are looking at it seriously. Now we had we were talking about Duterte, the president of the Philippines. He goes to China and basically says, and I'm quoting now, "I have separated from them." Talking about the United States, how serious is he? Well, how serious is he is a great question, considering some of the other really outrageous comments that President Duterte has made in the past, saying he admires Hitler, uh, uh, distancing himself from the United States, canceling military exercises. Look, generally speaking, there is a a clear trend on the part of the government in in the Philippines to try and distance itself from the United States and align itself more closely with China. After he made these comments to a trade group saying, 
implying that I'm separating from the United States, whatever that means, uh, in signing $13.5 billion in trade deals with China. Some of his advisors tried to come back and sort of backpedal this. But there's no doubt that he has made, I mean, a, a kind of a cornerstone, I guess, now of his foreign policy, um, aligning himself much closely, more closely with his with his Asian neighbors. Uh, and whether this is something that's going to be a smart strategy for him domestically, we'll see. Uh, but he wrote in, as the caller alluded to, on this rave of, uh, wave of sort of popular support largely aimed at combating drug abuse and, and the illegal drug trade in the Philippines. And this sort of, he is a kind of an outrageous figure, but also had a lot of popular support in the country. Adurahim? The uh, um, comparison that, or the similarities that the, the caller sees between what's happening in the Philippines and what's happening here in the United States, I mean, I just find it absolutely perplexing that um, whether here in the United States, the Philippines, or other parts of the world, that people nowadays uh, can uh, listen to somebody saying some really wacky and offensive things, and instead of recognizing them for what they are, they say he's being honest. I don't know what that means for that, uh, as, as a global trend, but it is certainly there uh, beyond the United States and the, and the, and the Philippines. And while we're talking about uh, uh, global trends, there is something obviously that's happening to global alliances in the second half of the Obama administration. Whether you're looking at the Philippines or you're looking at Turkey or you're looking at Egypt or you're looking at Saudi Arabia or, or you're Pakistan. looking at Israel or Pakistan. Many countries around the world are actually reviewing or taking a harder look at their alliance with the United States. Whether how pivotal uh, this this review, how real uh, will it actually be at the end of the day, I don't know. I mean, in the case of the Philippines, it seems to me, it seems to me, and I don't have any hard facts here, that he's, he's letting off steam at this particular point in time. Whether in terms of the security of his country, he can actually rely on the Chinese, and he has some serious disagreements with the Chinese, and ditch the Americans... I don't know whether he can actually do that and continue to uh, get away with it and secure the best interests of his country. Now, from what I understand, the United States is still pretty popular among the populace in yes, the Philippines. Yes, among rank-and-file Filipinos, yeah. no question. And let's not forget, not only is, Phil is the Philippines a treaty ally of the United States, we are obligated under treaty to defend them if they come under attack by anyone, including China. So they're a treaty ally. People need to remember that. But they're also, no question, our most important ally in Southeast Asia. I mean, the only one who would rival them in all of Asia would be Japan and South Korea, which are also treaty allies. Okay, so put that first. Secondly, just before Duterte came into office, under his predecessor, the United States signed with the Philippines um, a number of agreements to um, reopen bases, basically, which was the first time in decades since the U.S. was kind of forked out, forced out of Clark and Subic. So, hold, hold that thought in yeah. here. We're going to continue when we come back. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. Welcome back to the Diane Ream Show. I'm your guest host, Derek McGinty, and this is our roundup of the big international stories of the week. My guests here in studio 
Abdurrahim Fukara. He is bureau chief at Al Jazeera Arabic. Indira Laxmanan is foreign policy columnist for the Boston Globe. Shane Harris is a senior correspondent at the Daily Beast. And Indira, you were talking about uh, uh, our friend President Duterte, <laughs> our apparently former friend President Duterte, you call him Trump on steroids. He is Trump on steroids, and you know one of the things. In in fact, one of his nicknames in uh, the Philippines is Duterte Harry, which I like because <laughs> he's this law and order president who used to be the mayor of Davao City, an important city in the south of the Philippines, and he led all these law and order campaigns that not only included police going out and just shooting suspected drug dealers, but these vigilante groups, basically kind of death squads roaming around the city. And this is what they're doing now nationwide in the Philippines. So just he's only been in office a couple of months, folks, and more than 3,000 people have been killed in this drug war. So a lot of these are extrajudicial killings. And some of the things he's said, he's said, I mean, we all became aware of him when he called the president of the United States, the son of a, I'm not going to say it, but a really bad word um, when they were about to meet meet at a big summit in um, in Asia. And, you know, he was mad because Obama had been asked about his anti-drug campaign that was killing all these people. But in the past, he said even crazier things, like he talked about a missionary, an Australian missionary in the Philippines who had gone in to help prisoners in a Philippine jail, and there was a prison break, and she was raped and murdered. Oh, and he made a remark saying, she was pretty, I as mayor should have been the first in line. <sighs> Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of curdles the blood. But nonetheless, Filipinos are very aware of who this guy is, and he was overwhelmingly elected. But the interesting tension here from a geopolitical point of view is that Filipinos were supportive of the United States being given access to bases because they wanted United States help to defend against Chinese incursions into what is currently Philippine territory, islands that China says, no, we have a right to those South China Sea islands. And the Philippines says, no, these have always been our Filipino islands. The U.S. has been very supportive of the Philippines in this case. So for him to now pivot and say, I'm on China's side, for the Philippines won a court arbitration, an international court arbitration, that those are their islands. Mm. And he said after they won, well, we might be willing to negotiate something Well, let me with China. ask this question. Does he have autocratic tendencies? And is that why he's so attracted to the Chinese? Well, he it depends who you talk to. But clearly, he does have autocratic uh, uh, tendencies. And he has the support in uh, the Philippines to actually uh, behave the way he is behaving. Uh, Indira mentioned the war on, on, on drugs. Uh, uh, many Filipinos are, are obviously so fed up with the issue of drugs that when somebody like Dirty Harry, excuse the... When he comes along and he says, I want to take a tough stance on the issue of drugs, even it veers off into this crazy talk that he's been having about it. if we were to burn them, we should we should be able to burn them. And it's not the United States place to tell us whether we should burn drug addicts or not. But he does have the support. Does he have enough uh, support? Uh, the practical support that he really needs to pivot off uh, uh, these, uh, this alliance with the United States to, to, to China, I'm not so sure about that, not just because of you know, the terms of the alliance and because of the investment by the United States in the security of the, of the, of the Philippines, but also because a, a new alliance with China 
is still uncharted uh, territory for the for the Philippines, and it's not guaranteed to what extent they would actually go along with it all the way. The Chinese and there are is. what a few million uh, Filipinos here in this country, many of whom send a lot of money back to the Philippines, don't they? Sure. I mean, there's remittances that go back. There's a long history between these countries. I mean, it's a it's a long tradition. Um, I, I think just there's also when we're talking about his autocratic tendencies. I think there's some delusions of grandeur here as well. I mean, there was a, he made in his speech saying he was separating from the United States, where he said that the United States does not speak with quote the larynx of civility. So. An interesting sort of that a, a term there. that I'd not heard. I hadn't either. But he said, uh, "Maybe I will go to Russia and talk to Putin and tell him that the three of us are against the world: oh, China, no. Philippines, and Russia. It's the only way. There is not a trilateral alliance of China, <laughs> Philippines, and Russia against the world. I mean, it's just a very interesting posturing on his part, and maybe wanting to be seen to be aligned with people who are tough and strong and standing up to the United States. But uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't think that uh, Moscow is anticipating a call from Manila. On you this know, I, I, we did get a question." on our website posted by somebody calling themselves Dream Queen, and she or he asks, where did all the hostility in the Philippines come from? Is it the whole country or is it just Duterte? And I say, I say, pull all American investment and aid. Okay, well, I mean, the hostility that has been expressed has been from Duterte, not from the country. Even his government, his senior officials, as Shane said earlier, have tried to walk back his comments about the separation, which implies a divorce from the United States. The State Department is extremely upset about this and puzzled, um, particularly when after this Duterte comments that he made about President Obama, their meeting was canceled at the summit, but then they ended up having a little pull aside and exchanging some polite remarks. The United States is trying to sort of brush this off and ignore this guy because the bureaucracy of the Philippine government is still very much, you know, happy to have Americans there advising and bases and special forces who are helping them against their own, by the way, radical Islamic terrorism problem that they have in the south of the country. Not to mention and, the weapons we send them as well. Uh, lots of weapons. And um, and the Philippine people, as we were talking about earlier, are very pro-American. At the same time, the majority of them are very pro-Duterte at the moment. And I know because when I wrote a column about this, boy, I got a lot of email from Filipinos overseas saying, how dare you criticize wow. Duterte for his human rights abuses? If you lived here, you would know how the war on drugs is critical. Um, so, you know, they're strong opinions about this. I mean, it, it also seems to me that he's, uh, obviously when he's making these statements about the United States, he's playing to the gallery both in the Philippines and in China. And incidentally, he's not the only one who's using this kind of rhetoric as some sort of blackmail, if you will. I mean, we've heard the Egyptians, for example, old and close ally of the United States, um, after the, the coup in 2013, saying, OK, if you don't want to go along with us, we'll go to the Russians. And in fact, the president of Egypt started developing uh, relations, military relations with the, with the Russians. But ultimately, uh, the, the, you, you, cannot go, you cannot go around the United States if you're the Philippines, because the United States is a country that's basically trying to pivot away from the Middle East to the Pacific. And the security situation between the United States and the Philippines, the United States and Japan is, uh, and other countries in the region is so vital. Um, I think you can make those noises if you will, but at the end of the day, it's very hard to uh, practically pivot from the United States to China if you're the Philippines. Let's get to some more phone calls. Arnold in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You're on the air. Thank you. Hi. Um uh, to keep this brief, my question is this, or it's it's actually a comment. Uh, 
Uh, if uh, you recall, back 15 years ago, the press really didn't do its due diligence in informing the American public uh, about um, uh, how some of the evidence that uh, came forth with regard to Saddam Hussein having um, WMDs was not exactly um, solid. And what I, I see again uh, is a very similar uh, scenario in uh, various three-letter agencies working hand-in-glove, a la Judy Miller at the New York Times 15 years ago, uh, it, it, uh, to now, uh, it, it kind of uh, 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 feeding um, paranoia and hysteria uh, about uh, certain other countries. Give me an example of that. Uh, an example would be... Uh, um, the um, really the the attribution of 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 the of the emails uh, to Russia. Okay, the emails the email to hacks. Russia. Ah, okay. Yeah. There you go. We did, I just wanted to be sure what you were talking about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll address that. I've been covering this extensively, and I think the caller is is right to have skepticism when you talk about intelligence agencies coming out and attributing certain actions and particularly motivations, as they did in this case, which is highly, highly unusual for intelligence agencies. And to harken back to the you know the bad calls about with WMD in Iraq, I guess what we can say here is that um, there is a lot of technical evidence that has been reviewed also by independent security companies uh, looking at this who have gotten information directly from the DNC and others who've handed it over to say essentially come in and look at this and map it. Um, the profile of these hacker groups down to the kind of malware they use, the kind of targeting they use, the tactics and techniques matches up with other instances in which there is high confidence that it's this same group of actors. Um, and yes, we should always have some skepticism about attribution in these cases because it can be very difficult, but I, I don't think that they would have made, and I know they did not take this to decision lightly to come out and do this, particularly because of the moment at which it arrives, knowing that if you come out and say Russia is trying to meddle with the elections, there will be great scrutiny and skepticism that greets that. Um, I, I hope that the intelligence community has learned from its mistakes, but also the kinds of calls you're making when it comes to attributing cyber attacks and guessing about a WMD program and a country to which you have access, don't have access are fundamentally different sets of calculations. So it's a little bit of apples and oranges to say, well, they screwed up in Iraq. Why should we trust them on this. I think Shane is absolutely right. And and some of the analysis that has been done, not only by U.S. intelligence agencies, um, but also, as he says, independent companies, has involved Russian code, right, Shane? So that's something that, you know, plus, I believe, um, is it true, Shane, that Guccifer, which is essentially a Russian hacker, hacking collective, has taken responsibility for this? That's has right. outright said, Right, yes. has now come out and essentially said, yes, so this is, this is who I am. And so there are a lot of, there are multiple data points on this, including ones that can be independently corroborated, uh, and people coming forward now and claiming responsibility for this as well. I mean, the 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 the, the problem is that, as uh, uh, Hillary Clinton said during the debate, when you have 16 or 17 intelligence agencies saying something, then you have to sit up and listen. But the problem, what I I personally find perplexing about what's being said about the, the Russians trying to meddle with the U.S. election. 
I'm at to this particular point in time, I'm not clear uh, in my head whether the intelligence agencies are saying that the Russians are trying to undermine the credibility of the U.S. election or to actually physically and materially rig the results of the mm. election. Because James Clapper, the head of intelligence, came out yesterday and he said the ballot boxes cannot be rigged because they're not connected to the Internet and therefore the Russians cannot tamper with the results of the of the. Of the I ballot, did not get the, the impression boxes. that he meant that, but so much as to inflame public opinion in one direction or another. Well, there was also the case of a couple of states who said that there were attempts to hack their actual voting system, mm. and they had alleged that those were potentially tied to the Russians. Right. I mean, and you've seen states also come out and say that their voter registration files uh, have been targeted. Now, that's different than vote counts. That mm. that This is more, I think, about sowing um, distrust in the results or making people think something is fishy here, we shouldn't trust these results. So that sort of broad kind of sowing uh, um, uh, uh, suspicion about the election. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. So then the question becomes, what should the United States be doing about this? How strong a reaction do you make? Well, what they are doing about it is, I mean, twofold. One is that extraordinary statement we saw coming out and attributing the attacks to Russia and saying it is in order to do X, Y, and Z, which usually intelligence agencies don't like to assess motivation. That's kind of getting in someone's head, which tells you that they think they have pretty good access to the people doing this and mm. might be watching their communications, talking about it. And the other is the Homeland Security Department has come out and put states on notice with the FBI and said, listen, we have a decentralized election system. It's up to you and these individual states. States to ensure that your voting systems, your registration files, anything connected to the Internet is secure. And if you ask us, we will come in and help you scan those systems. And to date, more than half of all states have taken DHS up on that offer and uh, about a dozen uh, local and county boards as well. And that number is growing. So they're saying essentially to the feds, come in here and help us check these systems and let's make sure that they're secure. Most states, fortunately, do have a paper trail backup of votes that are done um, using a computerized system. Um, but I, I read that I think it's five states who don't have any paper trail backup. And that is, of course, a concern. And, you know, to the I, I completely take the caller's point, which is I think the difference, though, in 2002, 2003, was that there were many intelligence agents who knew that the evidence was not bad, but they were politically being told. They were being told by political leaders, yeah, don't don't use that. Or they were being, you know, fed other information. That's a different thing from what we're talking about here, which is saying, who is the one responsible behind these attacks that are directly affecting us where we can look if at the, the United origin. States is that certain about who, who's done this if there is retaliation would we even know well I mean we've <laughs> certain we, we we heard uh, uh, very recently Joe Biden say that the United States does plan to retaliate but it plans to retaliate at a time of its choosing and although that reminds me of rhetoric that sometimes I hear in the Middle East when governments do not plan to follow up on that, uh, obviously the, the issue here is much more serious than that. Will we know uh, when the, 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 the United States retaliates against the, the, the Russians? I, I guess the Russians are not going to keep quiet about it when it happens. Or they, they might, like, to, not, to not show that they've been hacked. Mm -hmm. Well, you know? I mean, given, yes, I mean, you could argue it both ways. But just looking at the behavior of Putin now and the stature that he's trying to build for uh, Russia and himself globally, it seems very, to me, uh, very unlikely that if Russia were to be hit, that Russia would keep quiet about it.
I just want to make one quick point, which is understanding the motivations of Russia and why Putin would want to interfere in the U.S. election and why he might favor Trump over Hillary Clinton. There was that whole exchange with you're a puppet. No, you're a puppet. No, you're you know, you're the puppet. That whole thing. Who's the puppet? Well, I would advise everyone to read an excellent column that ran in The Washington Post on Monday by Jackson Deal, where he explained that essentially Putin does not believe that the color revolutions in Ukraine and, and Central European countries were independent democratic revolutions against Putin-backed, pro-Kremlin um, figures. He believes that the U.S. and the State Department got involved and sort of fed democracy into those places. So He's this upset. is payback. He's resentful, and this is payback. Now, he may be wrong, but he sees the U.S. hand interfering in other elections against pro-Kremlin types, and he wants to do the same as the argument in this column. All right. Indira Lakshman is a foreign policy columnist for the Boston Globe, a contributor to Political Magazine. Abdurrahim Fukara is uh, Bureau Chief at Al Jazeera Arabic, and Shane Harris is Senior Correspondent at The Daily Beast, Future of War Fellow at New America, and author of the book At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. I want to thank the three of you for taking part in our International News Roundup. We really appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you. Derek. Thank you. I'm Derek McGinty. Diane Rehm will be back Monday, and you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Cliff Gallagher answers the phones. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR.